Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a pediatric hospitalist here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today is part two of our discussion on the outpatient care of pediatric patients with sickle cell disease. The focus of this episode will be on the care of adolescents and young adults. First, I'd like to welcome back Kayla Cooper, who's a medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to continue our discussion regarding sickle cell disease. Next, I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Nina Batamosi, who's an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology here at MCG and a practicing pediatric hematologist at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Thank you for having me back. Let's jump right back in. Kayla, do you want to present our first case? Yes, I will. Our first patient is a 15-year-old male with hemoglobin SS who presents to the hematology clinic for a follow-up visit. He has been well-established in clinic in the past, but has missed a couple of appointments over the past year. He has been inconsistent with taking hydroxyurea and had a couple of recent emergency department visits for vaso-occlusive episodes. Dr. Batamosi, what are your typical priorities for an adolescent visit in the sickle cell disease clinic? So Kayla, as teens get older with sickle cell disease, some of the long-term complications become more apparent. The most obvious is evolution from acute to chronic pain with ongoing near-daily pain in a lot of our patients that can last six months or more out of the year. In addition, we see comorbid psychiatric conditions like anxiety and depression that will make the pain in these patients more difficult to treat. Other long-term complications that become more apparent include pulmonary hypertension, cardiomegaly, progressive nephropathy, and hepatopathy, including gallstones and other hepatobiliary complications. It definitely seems like there are um, some additional clinical complications that are pertinent for teenagers living with sickle cell disease. Dr. Batamosi, would you mind speaking on what screening and routine health maintenance do you typically provide during the adolescent visits in the sickle cell clinic? Sure. So health maintenance includes the management of disease-modifying therapy, including their compliance, their side effects, whether or not this is hydroxyurea therapy or transfusion therapy. We also review some of the newer sickle cell disease medications that have been recently approved. We catch up on their vaccinations, and we also screen for long-term complications. So we can perform annual echocardiograms to screen for ventricular hypertrophy as well as pulmonary hypertension. We can also perform a urine microalbumin to screen for sickle nephropathy. Liver function tests will assess liver function, hepatobiliary health, and we recommend that these follow an ophthalmologist to get their annual dilated eye exams. Now, in our patients with a history of transfusional iron overload, we will assess hepatic iron using magnetic resonance imaging and MRI-based iron quantification, and we will also refer them for audiology screens to assess for autotoxicity. Finally, for patients with chronic pain, we focus on multidisciplinary interventions to help manage their pain beyond medications. Hearing what you've said so far about what you'd like to take care of in these adolescent visits really shows the multi-system effects that sickle cell disease has. I wanted to focus in on chronic pain because this is such an important topic for these patients. Can you tell us more about why these patients develop chronic pain and how we can better care for them? Certainly. So the underlying pathophysiology behind chronic pain is complex, right? Multifactorial, but may result from progressive and bony and joint ischemia, as well as infarctive damage, chronic inflammation, nerve damage, as well as opioid-induced central sensitization over time. Now, this pain complex can result in a vicious cycle of hyperalgesia, opioid tolerance, and opioid-induced side effects. And this leads to more acute care utilization, including hospitalization, and increasing frustration for both patients and providers. 
It's also important to appreciate chronic pain in the context of the opioid epidemic, right? A lot of our sickle cell patients who come to the ED frequently are labeled as drug seeking simply because they're looking for solutions to a problem that we haven't yet caught up with as clinicians. Current sickle cell therapies like hydroxyurea and even the newer medications are not adequate to deal with these long-term side effects. And in sickle cell patients, not every therapy is tolerated by every single patient. Remember that hydroxyurea, which was the earliest approved sickle cell medication in the 90s, was approved at a time when life expectancy was very different from what it is now. At that time, maybe it was in the second decade. Now a lot of our patients were living to their 40s and 50s. So now that our patients are living and thriving longer, we need to come up with better ways to deal with chronic pain and a lot of the other complications from sickle cell disease. Studies have shown that the rate of opioid misuse in sickle cell patients is not much different from that of the general population, but there still remains a stigma when these patients present to our ED and are you know, requesting acute pain management at higher doses than we're comfortable with. So we really need to put all of these in mind and reconsider our approach to managing these patients. You know, you bring up a lot of good points. Opioid misuse is always on the forefront of everyone's mind when thinking about discharging a patient home with the number of pills to treat a pain crisis. But we have to be careful that we treat pain because of its contribution to chronic pain syndromes like you already mentioned here for these patients with sickle cell disease. Something you also mentioned was multidisciplinary interventions to help manage these patients' chronic pain. What are your go-to non-opioid interventions for these patients? Well, just like you said, chronic pain can be debilitating for many of our patients, and it likely contributes to most of the poor outcomes we see and poor quality of life in these patients. But um, I mentioned earlier that comorbidities like anxiety and depression can worsen chronic pain in our patients. So a lot of our patients need a strong psychosocial support network to thrive, and that's why I work with a team of social workers, psychologists, nurse coordinators to help our patients with the support they need. The first thing is ensuring that our patients have access to short-term opioids so that we can keep our patients out of the ED. But um, when chronic pain is difficult to manage, we consider non-opioid therapies like topical lidocaine patches, neuropathic pain medications like epipentin and pregabalin, and even the use of antidepressants. In older patients, especially those with signs of nephropathy, I tend to use NSAIDs cautiously when there are no alternatives. And acetaminophen should also be used cautiously when patients have underlying hepatobiliary disease. In MCG here, I've recently begun working with Dr. Bell from Palliative Care, and she has been doing an excellent job in managing our patients who are on long-acting opioids, switching them from short-acting to long-acting opioids, as well as using other adjunct therapies for managing their pain. In addition, our psychology colleagues, as well as Dr. Pendergrass in the Mind-Body Clinic, have been very helpful in teaching our patients non-pharmacologic pain interventions, like the guided imagery and distraction techniques that can be helpful in, in managing their pain. So essentially, it takes a village to manage chronic pain in sickle cell disease. Yes, yeah, so Dr. Benamosi, it seems that um, you have to be quite creative when thinking about solutions to treating chronic pain as well as utilizing a holistic approach when managing these patients. I know you also mentioned some newer medications for sickle cell disease. Could you tell us more about those? Sure. So three new medications have been approved over the past three years, Voxelator, Crizanlizumab, and L-glutamine. Now, Voxelator is a polymerization inhibitor, and it prevents sickling of deoxygenated hemoglobin, which prevents hemolysis, 
and is currently indicated for anemia in patients with sickle cell disease of all genotypes. Crizanlizumab is a P-selectin inhibitor, and it targets inflammatory pathways that contribute to vasoclusive crises. It is currently approved for recurrent vasoclusive crises, but we also utilize this in older patients who have chronic pain. And finally, L-glutamine is the amino acid that contributes to decreasing vasoclusive crisis severity by repleting the natural NADH pathways in red cells and endothelial cells, and just decreases the oxidative damage that results from free hemoglobin and from sickling. So that's so interesting, and it's really good that we're finding additional therapies outside of opioids to manage these children's pain. Dr. Batamosi, in your practice, are you finding these new medications helpful, and are they affordable for our patients? So affordable, I'm not exactly sure. Um, Thankfully, we've been working with a lot of the pharmaceutical companies, and many of them, since they are FDA approved, are now being covered by insurance. A lot of patients are reporting that they are helpful. Some of our patients, we've had a few patients who are not tolerating as well as we would like, but for most patients, they've been tolerable and more importantly, helpful in controlling pain and anemia from sickle cell disease. That's extremely interesting, Dr. Badamosi. And when thinking back to our case, um, our patient had been having multiple vasoclusive episodes and subsequent emergency department visits. Dr. Batamosi, are there certain factors that we need to remember that put patients at higher risk for increased healthcare utilization and even mortality from sickle cell disease? You know, in addition to the other long-term complications that we've talked about before, I think chronic pain is the biggest risk factor for increased healthcare utilization, as well as long-term morbidity in our patients. Patients who have pain complications or bony complications like avascular necrosis of the hip or AVN of the hip, AVN of the shoulder joints, these patients are particularly high risk for chronic pain and chronic pain complexes. Unfortunately, a lot of these complications occur around important transition milestones or in the adolescent period. And so many of these patients who are leaving high school or starting new jobs or going to college will tend to have more of these long-term complications. The pressures, we all know about adolescents and some of the pressures that our adolescent patients face, but many of these adolescent issues will cause our patients to deprioritize their health. As a result, you start seeing decreased medication compliance, less frequent clinic follow-ups, and unfortunately, an acceleration of the complications that can increase morbidity and mortality. And so with adolescents in general, our patients are more likely to navigate these transitions successfully if they have a strong family and psychosocial support system. Dr. Batamosi, you mentioned a lot of social determinants of health, many things that require a comprehensive clinic like you have in hematology to take care of these complex patients. In our first episode, we talked about how younger children are high risk for invasive infection and stroke. Is this the same with sickle cell patients in their adolescence and young adulthood? That's a great question. I think the risk of invasive infection remains in older patients and because these patients are either functionally or surgically splenic, right? But the likelihood of mortality has been shown to decrease specifically from pneumococcal diseases. And I think this is partly because our patients have been vaccinated against the pneumococcal illnesses. But it is not uncommon to see our patients succumb to non-pneumococcal infections. And so it's still important to keep neisseria, meningitis, or salmonella osteomyelitis on your radar. 
And so I recommend that our patients still continue to get their five-yearly boosters, especially for the meningococcal and pneumococcal vaccines. In terms of stroke, it is still a major issue regardless of age. However, you know, even though the Doppler ultrasound TCD screening stops at age 16 because of skeletal maturity, the ongoing endothelial damage and endothelial dysfunction and cerebral vasculopathy is still there. And so I think their risk is still the same. So what I'm gathering is even though that child's outside the the school age period, they're still at high risk for pneumococcal, but also non-pneumococcal infections. So we've got to be really careful with febrile illnesses just the same. Absolutely. Let's keep moving on. Kayla, do you want to present our next case? Let's get right into it. Our next patient is a 18-year-old girl with hemoglobin SS who is seen in follow-up in the sickle cell clinic. She has avascular necrosis of her left hip and has been followed closely in the clinic. She's excited about finishing high school soon and wants to attend college to be a teacher. She also is wondering how much longer she will be coming to the pediatric clinic. Dr. Badamosi, how do you think about structuring the transition of care for young adults with sickle cell disease to the adult clinic? Yes, Kayla. So first, I'd like to start by defining transition. And transition is a process of moving our sickle cell patient from family-centered pediatric care to adult-centered health care. I see it as a continuous process, and this culminates in the eventual transfer of care or moving to the adult clinic. But this continuous process should begin early in adolescence. Our goals of transition here at Augusta especially are to increase our patients' understanding of their condition so that they can better manage their health. We aim to increase their ability to effectively navigate health services and facilitate their transfer to an adult provider in an organized manner. I think as pediatricians, we can learn a lot about the transition to the adult hematology clinic because it parallels the care that patients receive in the general pediatrician's office. If we wait until our patient is 18 or 21 years old before introducing the concept of moving to the adult clinic, that could lead to fragmented care. Better Batamosi, practically speaking, how do you facilitate the transition to the adult service in your hematology clinic? So our transition program integrates evidence-based core elements of healthcare transition using the God transition model. This process begins by introducing our patients and families to the idea of healthcare transition around age 13. We also prepare our patients to transition over the next several years by educating them, engaging them during and outside of their clinical appointments, and supporting their psychosocial needs, like we mentioned earlier. We mentor our patients, and once they get older, we help model adult-centered care in our teen clinics in an effort to improve transition readiness between ages 18 and 21. As our patients get closer to their transition age, we formulate an individual transition plan with them that's specifically tailored to their needs. And we help them identify sickle cell hematologists depending on where they will be going. We educate them on the key elements of their medical history, and we provide them with portable medical summaries that they can refer to that contains pertinent information about their healthcare. And then finally, we refer them to an adult provider when they're ready and then follow up six months later to ensure that they have successfully transitioned and are keeping their adult appointments. The GOT transition model that you've been discussing seems um, like a very helpful and beneficial tool for bridging these patients to adult hematology clinics. We will be sure to leave a link to this resource in our show notes. Is there any evidence that following a structure like this improves patient outcomes? So yes, to a certain degree, and there's a a little bit of nuance to that. 
A lot of the data supporting the use of a structured transition model comes from young adult patients with chronic health care needs and not just sickle cell disease. And so while many sickle cell centers across the country have adopted the GOT transition model, the interventions that seek to improve transition readiness in these patients are unique to these individual institutions. So they're not uniform across all of these different institutions. And so, you know, when you look at the data, a lot of the outcomes that have been reported have been different. Some will report retention in adult clinics and some institutions will report increase or decrease in hospital or acute care utilization. So overall, I think there's still a lot of work to do to improve the consistency of our interventions and our outcome measurements. But overall, there is a trend in the right direction. Sure. And this is such an important topic because the work that we do as a pediatrician We're only going to see that benefit if they continue to stay in healthcare as they move on to young adulthood. So this has been a really good, you know, focused conversation on on some of the chronic pain and chronic comorbidities that come alongside a sickle cell disease patient in adolescence and young adulthood. As we're getting short on time, Dr. Batamosi, do you want to leave our listeners with any uh, take-home points? Sure. So from this podcast, I would love our listeners to take home some of the following points. And the first thing I can think of is just to remember that adolescence is a complicated period for teenagers in general, but more so for teenagers living with a chronic illness such as sickle cell disease. And, you know, sickle cell disease in the teenage years is associated with really high risk for morbidity and mortality. So the goal of our transition program is to help our patients navigate this period safely and successfully, and also for our pediatrician colleagues to keep in mind that chronic pain is a complex condition to manage in sickle cell disease and requires a multidisciplinary approach to improve outcomes in morbidity and mortality. Well, very good. I want to thank each of y'all again for coming on today to complete this part two of our discussion of the care of patients with sickle cell disease and outpatient medicine. Thank you, Dr. Fatimosi and Dr. Hodges, for allowing me to join in this critical conversation for an important patient population. And thank you, Kayla and Dr. Hodges, for inviting me. I'm glad I was given a chance to share knowledge on this very important aspect of sickle cell disease care, and I can always be reached via email with any follow-up questions. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics, the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.